Also, we are in this series called, so, Seven Days. And so we're looking at the seven days. And so the question is going to come as we look at it, well, what are these seven days that we are talking about? And so I want to kind of give you a snapshot of what these seven days are. The first day starts on Sunday, and this traditionally would be Palm Sunday, and it's really the triumphal entry into Jesus, into Jerusalem. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and uh, so this is triumphal entry. On Monday, we see that Jesus actually goes and he clears the temple. Many of you are familiar with the story of how he goes in with the den. He calls this place, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned into a den of robbers, and he turns over the money table, uh, the money table and, and, uh, and just kind of brings attention back to the, the, the holiness of God. And then we see that on Tuesday, he does teaching. Jesus is a teacher, so he's teaching on the Mount of Olives, and he just unpacks a whole lot about heaven and authority, and, uh, and so we're going to look at that. And then Wednesday, there's not a whole lot written about Wednesday. Wednesday is sort of a day in Bethany where Jesus is sort of resting, as you can imagine. Uh, he's getting ready mentally, physically, spiritually ready for what is about to take place. He knows exactly why he was born. He knows exactly what he was called to do. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And there is a moment of rest. Thursday is the day where we see the Last Supper. It's the, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. We also see that after that, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he has that prayer. And then we see that he's arrested, and then he's put on trial in the middle of the night. And so that happens on Thursday. And then Friday, we see that this is the crucifixion, right? This is the day where it all comes to a head, and he's crucified on the hill of Golgotha. So we see that Saturday is sort of this waiting and warring. Jesus is in the grave, and his disciples are waiting, unsure of what is happening, all the while where God and Jesus is warring on our behalf. He's warring in, in hell on our behalf. And then Sunday, come on now, who gets it ready about Sunday? Sunday is the day that we get to celebrate. Sunday is the resurrection Sunday. And so that is the week of Jesus. And over the next really five weeks plus Good Friday, we're going to kind of pull Good Friday into that conversation. We have a seven-part series. We're going to look at the seven days of Jesus. And then some of you would ask, well, why on earth would we spend in a whole series talking about one week of Jesus' life. That seems a little bit crazy, doesn't it? And the answer is simply because the Bible does. The Bible spends a lot of time focusing on the last seven days of Jesus' life. In fact, if you were to look at the Gospels, we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the first four books of the New Testament. They were kind of written as eyewitnesses' perspective of the same time period, right? The same season. They're all given perspective of Jesus' life from their perspectives, and so we hear different, we see a lot of overlapping stories, some unique perspectives in each story. But we have these four Gospels of Jesus' life. And if you were to combine the chapters of all four Gospels, you would see that there are 89 total combined chapters. So there's 89 total combined chapters of eyewitness record of who Jesus' life. And out of those 89 chapters, four are focused on the first 30, year, of, of the first thir, the first 30 years. So while he was you know, growing up, and still a child, we don't hear a lot, there's not a lot about that scripture about him as a child, there's a few snippets and insights, but really four chapters are committed to that part. Then if you look in, there's 85 chapters combined are the, the next three and a half years of Jesus' life in ministry, 85. And out of those 85, 29 focus on the last seven days. Meaning one third of the gospel focuses on the last seven days of Jesus' life and ministry. So that makes us go, well, we better take notice, right? I mean, that's a lot of attention focused on the last seven 
and days. And so we are going to look into that. And this week is often called, maybe you know, it's called the Passion Week, right? This is the Passion Week. This is where God, it's like where the final weeks give us this compound perspective of Jesus' love or God's great love for us, where Christ's passion for you and I was put on full display. Like it wasn't just something he talked about. It wasn't just, it wasn't just something he, he mentioned or he hinted at. It was something that he lived out on full display. And my prayer for us as we start this series is that we would not only catch a greater glimpse of God's passion, right? His passion, Christ's passion for us, but that something would spark inside of us and there would be an overflow of passion in response to him in return to his great love. Can someone hear me? Come on. There has to be an overflow effect. There's this, his passion for us, his love for us needs to be reciprocated in our life towards him. And if we're honest with ourselves, just a little bit of confession moment. If you've been like me and you've grown up in this church thing and you've, you've heard about God's love for you or you've, you've read this verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? If you, if he gave his only one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're like me and you memorize this scripture as a child, then often we can just say it verbatim and miss out on the truth that is represented in this scripture. The passion that is represented in this scripture, that God's love for you is so deep, it's so profound, it's so personal, it's so true, that it wasn't just something he said, but it's something he convinced, he walked out, he lived out, that we miss the moment and we kind of take this moment for granted. We take this love for granted. Romans 8, 5, 8 says, this is how God demonstrated her. God showed his love, his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were sinners, Christ demonstrated in other translations that he, he didn't just talk about it. He didn't just say, for God so loved the world. No, no, no. He loved his world so much that he demonstrated his love by sending his one and only son to do the unthinkable. To do something that, that none of us, if we're honest in our room, none of us would love somebody so much that we would sacrifice our child to save them. Very few of us in this room, I, I, I would say very, actually none of us. I love you. But if you're asking me to sacrifice one of my boys to save you, you'd be hard-pressed. You'd be on your own. I'm sorry about that. You know? Like, that's all. We have that, right? Because our love, there's a limit to our love because we just, we just can't get our... But Christ's love for you is so profound. It is so personal. It's so powerful. It compelled him to do something. He was so passionate about you. And I believe that this kind of passion, this kind of passion demands a passionate response. God's passionate love for you demands a passionate response. Can I, come on, can I, can I get a passion, can I get a little passion in this room this morning? Are you awake with me? I'm going to have to start bringing a cloth up here. You guys are making me work too hard. Come on, we need to have some passion in us. We got to wake ourselves up a little bit, remind ourselves of God's great love. Not just talked about but personified into action. Isaac Watts, the author of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the old hymn that many of us love, he says, love so amazing, he penned this, so divine. What does it do? It demands, it demands, demands my soul, my life. Come on, not just my, my all, my everything. It demands everything in response to his great Love, and this is my prayer for us as we start this series, that God would spark and he would awaken a passion 
within us in response to his great love. Is anybody with me here today? Some of you are going to hate me by the end of this morning. I, I love it. I love you enough for you to hate me. That's all good. Come on. Country club church don't exist around here. All right? We're getting passionate about Jesus. He's going to waken something in us. And I'm prayer. my prayer is that he'll waken something within us. And so let's jump in. We're jumping in week day one, the triumphal entry. We're going to focus on that text. It's in Luke 19 we're going to read from. And so if you have your Bibles, feel free to flip or turn or tap or whatever you got to do to get there, or it's going to be on the screen here. So let's just jump into Luke 19. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, these are two small towns just outside the city of Jerusalem, at a hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent his disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you will find a colt there. Just make note of that. You will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it. And bring it here. Interesting enough, just a side point. I love that Jesus, he's just all-knowing. He just knows everything. Not only knows that there's going to be a cult there, he knows that cult is going to be tied up. It's not just wandering around, it's tied up. He knows this cult has ever been ridden. Like Jesus just has this information and he just spills it out of him like it's nothing. He just tells you this is exactly what you're going to find and how to find it. I just think that's pretty interesting. You know, Jesus just knows. He knows. He knows you. He knows your life. He knows every detail of your life. He says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Which is a pretty common question. Like, why are you taking something that doesn't belong to you? The, just say the Lord needs it. Okay. So they went ahead, the Bible says. And they found it just as he told them. Surprise. Right? Here it is. It should, shouldn't surprise me anymore, but it does. It surprises me. And as they were untying the colt, the owner asked them, what's up? What are you doing with my horse? Why are you taking my colt? Can you imagine? And they answer. The Lord needs it. And that's all we get from that. We don't see the response of the owner, but I'm assuming he relents. I'm assuming he just sort of gives up. We don't know if they fought over it. We don't know if there was a rustle. We don't know if there was a strong arm wrestling contest of like who's going to win. They just say, he just says, okay. He takes the colt. Guys, scripture's fun. Hey, don't look over these moments and just dismiss them. Like, think about the humanity. Someone comes and takes your colt that said the Lord needs it. What are you going to do? Okay. Like, just imagine yourself in that moment for a little bit. Just sit in the seat. Sit in the shoes of these people a little bit. And so, then, so he ties it. So they brought it to Jesus, and he threw their, clo their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. See, we're reading the Gospel of Luke right now, but Matthew and John, they record a part of this that Luke doesn't add, and he does this detail that he doesn't add. But they mention that the colt, the cult situation was actually prophesied, this moment, this situation was actually prophesied over 400 years earlier. Over 400 years earlier, it was prophesied that he was going to ride a cult, that he was going to sit on something that was unbroken. In fact, there was over 300 prophecies over 400 years ago, and Jesus fulfilled them all. You, read, you wonder why we believe in Jesus, because Jesus wasn't just a man who, a good man who lived a good life. No, he fulfilled, he accomplished more than ever because he fulfilled over 300 prophecies about his life. Like it was true, and, if he, and there's something about that. And so we see in Zechariah the prophet, he says, listen, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See that the king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly. What? Riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal. Of a donkey, there's this prophecy over 400, and here is the moment, and it's being fulfilled in front of them. Just another reminder, just another example of the deity of God, the power of God, the hope 
that is in Christ. We continue on in this story. I don't know if that excites you, but that excites me. As he was reading on, as we read on, he says, As they went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in a loud voice. They praised God in a loud voice for the miracle they had seen. Let's just keep that, don't lose that. For the miracle they had seen. Some, some scholars believe, because this is Jerusalem, some scholars believe there was going to be up to a, a million people gathered in Jerusalem at this time. Like, this wasn't just some small little crowd. This wasn't some little bandit of rebels. No, they were, this was, it was taking over the city. The city took notice that something was happening. And they shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Some translations say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Meaning God save us is what Hosanna means. God save us. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's this beautiful moment of praise as joyful voices declare the praise of God for what they had seen. And the Pharisees are in the crowd. They're always in the crowd, them darn Pharisees. Always lurking around every corner. And these Pharisees aren't taking a liking to this moment as per usual, right? Not liking what's going on here. And so they pipe up. And what are the Pharisees? Well, Pharisees are religious leaders who just don't know God. <laughs> they know religion. They know rules. They know law. But they don't know God. We've got some Pharisees among us sometimes, you know, like walking around us in sheep's clothing still. I'm not saying in this room. I'm not saying here today. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying, in life, Pharisees weren't reserved just for Scripture days, right? People who know their law, they know rules, they know religion, they just don't know God. They look good, but they're far from God. Anyway, they're in this moment. I don't want to preach on that. That's another thing. Then he says, teacher. I love how he calls him teacher. I love how the Pharisee actually addresses him as a rabbi. He addresses him as a teacher, not as a bandit, not as a rebel. He addresses him as a teacher. He acknowledges that he's a teacher. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This isn't good. This isn't the proper way. This is the way we're supposed to do this. And unfortunately, the, tragic, the tragedy of this moment is that people heard the Pharisees. And because of their influence, because of their power, because of their affluence, some people listened. Some people heard what they were saying. Oh, maybe that's not, maybe we're not, we shouldn't be doing this. Because then a week later, not even a week later, five days later, those same people who were shouting Hosanna were crying crucify him. So something shifted. They heard a different voice. They had a different influence. And so the Pharisees, and Jesus responds to them, and he says, listen, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. That's why I titled my message, Silence the Stones, baby. Silence the Stones, because no rock is going to take my place. Come on, some of you guys need a T-shirt. Silence the Stones. Come on, let's make that. Let's make a T-shirt. Silence the Stones, you know. No rock's going to take my place. Listen, I'm not letting a rock take my place. Are you kidding me? We're silencing the stones. We're going to let our praise ring loud and clear. Exposed here in this story, we're exposed to people which we would call people who have fickle faith. Their fickle faith. Their faith is up one day, then their faith is down one day. They're, sometimes they're convincing other people, and other times they're being convinced by other people. Their faith is up and down. People who worshiped him, listen to me. As I was reading the scripture, I, I just believe God gave me a revelation. If we worship God only for what he has done, we will develop a fickle faith. Like, it's, it's okay. We can worship God for what he's done. That's, that's what we can look back with thanksgiving and awe and reverence and worship for what he has done, the miracles in our life. That is a beautiful thing. But if your worship for him stops only for what he has done for you, what happens when the day he doesn't show up the way you want him to show up? 
What happens to the day that he doesn't answer the prayer the way you would answer the prayer for yourself or, or when he says no when you are praying for yes? Does your faith then become fickle? So what happens is this crowd had fickle faith. They had situational faith. We saw that he has done all the miracles. He, he fed us. He, he healed us. He restored us. He gave us hope. All that he has done. But they weren't praising him for who he was, for who he is. It goes beyond the things that he does. If you and I want us to have faith, if you and I want us to have faith that stands the test of time, that survives throughout a storm, we need to have faith not just for what he does, but for who he is. We worship him for who he is, not for what he does. What he does, just bonus. That's just the gravy on top. Now I love me a little gravy. In fact, if, there's not, if my meal isn't swimming in gravy, there ain't enough gravy. But how many people know gravy alone? That's not a meal. Throwing that out there. Some of you are shocked by that reality. Gravy's good. How many people know we need a little meat and potatoes on the side? We need a little meat and potatoes. We need a little bit of substance of who God is. The majesty, the royalty, the divinity of God in awe, in wonder, in holiness. Don't get quiet because I'm preaching too good on you today. Come on. <laughs> if I had a jacket, I'd take it off, you know? But here's the thing, and here's the reality we need to understand, is we are, there is a spiritual battle for our worship, right? We can see it in this, in this story that there is a spiritual battle taking place for the worship of the people, right? They're worshiping on, on Sunday, they're cursing him on a Friday. There is a battle for their worship. And I came in here to tell you, church, listen to me, there is a battle for your worship. There is a battle for your attention. There is a battle for your focus. There is a battle for your heart, your mind, your soul, your will, your strength. There is a battle for you. And if you build your faith on what God has done, you will lose. There will be a loss. You'll be a, there'll be a, there'll be a, a victim of circumstances. But I'm here to tell you, if we can rise up and we can worship for God for who he is, we will be victorious. Because I don't want to be a person with fickle faith. I don't want the stones to cry out in my place. I want my life, my life every day to silence the stones. So here's the reality. Here's the truth we need to understand. We all worship something. Everyone in this room, we all worship something. Our passion is going somewhere. Your passion is going somewhere. Take an inventory of what's taking your time, what's taking your money, your, your energy, your loyalty, your affections, your expressions. What is consuming you? What, is your fit? what are you focusing on? Something is getting all of that. It may be your job, it may be your spouse, it may be your sports team, it may be your, your pension, your investment. Something is getting all of that focus. And listen, it's, it's okay to have loves. It's okay to love those things. It's okay to have loves for those things. But here's the caveat. They cannot be the first love. They cannot be the main thing in your life. It's okay to have those things, but they can't be the main thing. What is, what is one of the second commandments, second greatest commandment, or second commandment? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, right? Like we serve a God who's a jealous God. He wants your focus. He doesn't want your hockey team to have more focus over him. Like he doesn't want to be, you, you sold out to a sports team over being sold out to him. You know, you can go to the arena on a, on a Saturday and you can scream and you can cheer and you can be called a fan. Woo! But you come to church and you have that same response, you're called a fanatic. Right? So Timmons is down a little bit. We're like, oh, I'll worship just a little bit. Come on now. God wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants everything. He wants, you to be, he wants to be first 
in your life. We serve a jealous God. And God gave you everything. He gave his all for you. And he's asking us to give his all in return. Here's the thing. We know worship is our response to what we value most. You want to know what you worship? What do you put the most value on? Because that's, what, that's what's getting your worship, your time, your energy, your affections, your, 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 um, your money, your loyalty. Here's, a no, here's what we know. When we, whatever I worship becomes an obsession, right? Whatever I worship becomes a thing I think about. And whatever I think about, whatever I become obsessed about, I begin to imitate. And as I begin to imitate those things, guess what? I become like that thing. So worship is what you value the most. Do you want to become? Who do you want to become like? I love Pastor Jack Hayford. He says this. He says, worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one being worshipped. Worship changes us into the one we are worshiping, meaning if you don't like who you're becoming, then we need to take an inventory of what or who you allow to sit on the throne of your life. If you don't like who you are becoming, what you are, what the, who you are beginning to live like, a model like, and live your life and react about, then you need to take inventory of what we are worshiping. What are you worshiping? What are you obsessing over? What are you becoming like? I'd make a suggestion that the crowd there on Sunday had the wrong motives. They didn't have Christ on their heart. Their faith was fickle. Their faith was situational. Their faith was seasonal. You read some of the Gospels, and there was this moment where, again, the Pharisees in the crowd, here they are again, piping up, and they're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to confront him. And they're asking about, you know, what do we do about money and about marriage and heaven? If, if you know, if, if a seven brothers married the same girl without having a kid, you know, well, whose wife would she be? Like, silly, silly questions. Because they're trying to trick him up. And meaning, they couldn't trick him up. They couldn't actually get there. Jesus was like, obviously, you know, just bringing wisdom to their crazy all the time. Right? And so in this moment, sorry, get a little dry. In this moment, this, another Pharisee steps up and he asks this question in Mark 12, verse 28. He says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. He heard this debate that was going on. And noticing that Jesus had not given them a good answer, which is a funny thing to say, he gave them the, the, the best answer. He just wasn't giving them the one they wanted, which is interesting. Again, another side point. He's, then he asked them, he said, of all the commandments, so he's talking about the Deuteronomy now, the book of the law, because that's what they live by, the book of the law in Deuteronomy. He says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And then Jesus responds, the most important one, Jesus answers is this. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, in all your strength. Like this is the most important thing, is who are you worshiping? The most important thing is who are you giving your affection to? Who are you giving your time to? Who are you giving your energy to? Who is, making the, who is the first in your life? Who is sitting on the throne of your heart? The, the most important thing is that you worship me with your whole life. The most important thing is that you worship me with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The book of John, the gospel tells us that God is actively looking for worshipers. He's actually moving around. I can just, he's sweeping around and wandering around looking for worship. Those who are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Those who are sold out for him, those who are committed to him. The word worship, the Greek word for worship here is proskuneo. And it's a verb. It means to prostrate before. It means to bow down. It means to kiss the hand. Not kiss the ring, but kiss the hand. You know, it's this, it's this, it's this, it speaks to this awe and this reverence without regard for oneself 
without external force or manipulation. Meaning, I am worshiping you because of who you are. And I'm not doing this because someone's telling me to do it. I'm not doing this because I feel compelled to do it by external forces. I'm doing it because I want to do it for who you are. It is a cry of desperation. It is a sign of reverence and awe when you understand that it's not just what God can do for you, but it's about who he is. And it because of who he is and who we are, he still invites us into his presence. He invites us into relationship. He invites us into his, into his throne room. And because of that, we are drawn into our knees in reverence. This is a heart attitude. This is who God is looking for. This is the heart of a worshiper. How many people, worship is not singing a song. It's not singing somebody else's lyrics. That's, that's a good expression of worship, but it's not worship. Worship is a heart posture of surrender, of awe and wonder of who God is. So three thoughts I want to give to you before you leave today. What does this look like? What does this awe look like? What does this proskuneo worship look like practically based on Mark's gospel, based on what Jesus is saying? You need to love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Here's the first thing. Write this down. Is that God wants us to worship him with our affections, with our affections, with our heart and our soul. Love that's not only felt, but love that is expressed. Thank God that he didn't just love me from afar, but he came into my world. He humbled himself. And he gave his life. He acted out his great love for you and for me. And so as we enter this great passion week, this, the greatest week of, hum, uh, of humanity, wouldn't it be great if we could not only say that we love God, but that we would find ways to express our love to God in return out of affection for who he is. I love Psalm 50. Many of us know this psalm. Psalm 150, starting in verse 1, says, Praise the Lord. Here it is. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in a sanctuary. Praise the Lord for his, in the mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the timber and the dancing. Praise him with the singing and the strings and the pipes. Praise him with the clash of the cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And if you miss me one more time, let me say it one more time. Praise the Lord. Come on, there is a call for our affection. There is a call for our worship. There is a call for our awe and our wonder to respond to him for who he is. This Hebrew word for praise is called halal. And it's, again, it's another verb. It's an action word. It's where we get the word hallelujah, which means to shine or to celebrate, to boast about, to, to rave about with clamorously foolish, to be clamorously foolish. I mean, we don't care what you think. We are praising the Lord. Hallelujah. I don't care what I look like. I'm not raving about who I am. I'm raving about him. I'm being foolish not for myself. I'm being foolish for him. It's called a praise. Just before this story, and Jesus goes before Sunday, there's this moment where Jesus is sitting in the house of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was one he just raised from the dead. His Martha, he's, she's busy preparing the place. And, you know, this guy's a big deal. He just raised my brother from the dead. we got to make sure we prepare a beautiful dinner, a beautiful time. And she's working, she's fressing, and as many of us would. But Mary, the sister, she's just like in awe, in reverence, in wonder. She finds herself sitting at Jesus' feet and she takes this bottle of perfume which is worth more 
than what she's using it for. Perceivably. As she pours out this bottled perfume and she gets to wash Jesus' feet, there's this beautiful moment. And people are gawking and they're concerned. They're wondering, what is going on? You're wasting so much money. You're wasting so much stuff. This is not the right moment. And Jesus is just taking it. He's just being lavished on. He's receiving this worship. And it's been said that she loved so lavishly because she'd been saved. Martha was a prostitute. She was far from God. And she recognized how God saved her life and restored her and redeemed her and purified her and set her apart. And so many seem, well, because she was saved so much from so much, she's now loving so much. But who are we to forget? Or who are we to think that we also have not been saved from much? I know I wasn't a prostitute, but I was destined to hell. And God's great love saw me and he welcomed me and he restored me and he redeemed me and he called me his own. I did not deserve that. And so many of us were like, well, I never sinned so bad. I was never, I never had a life before Jesus. Yeah, you did. You had a sinful life that was going to hell before Jesus. And don't forget that. We don't need to live there, but we cannot forget that that's where we were going. That's where we, that was our destination before Jesus showed up. And he calls us to heal us. Jesus saved us and he healed us. He delivered us. He he broke addictions and depressions and worries and anxieties and fears. You and I have been forgiven much. So our praise, we need to praise much in return. There's this army base in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And it's it's kind of right beside a community, right beside a highway. And every day these big, these big, uh, big, supersonic jets would come in and land and take off. You know, these, these kind of moments, if you've been by an airport, or you've been, you hear that kind of that rumbling, the, la- the loudness of a jet. And people were taking notice. Like, it was causing a stir. Everything was rattling all, the, all day. People were getting startled. It was, cutting a, it was creating a caution. It was creating a moment. And everyone was complaining about it. And finally, the military gets one day. They get one day up, and they put a billboard together right on the freeway. And it says this. It says, pardon our noise. This is the sound of freedom. And I'm here to tell you, church, I know we may not be American, and the freedom name doesn't necessarily ring with us, but our worship, come on, pardon my noise, for my praise is the sound of freedom. Chris, is this microphone on? Can you hear me? Can you hear me okay? You can hear me? Come on, pardon my noise, this is the sound of freedom. Chris, I thought you'd be up on your feet, but you disappointed me. Come on, pardon my noise. This is the sound of freedom. I got some people. Come on now, come on, let's go. Come on, let's praise him this morning. 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 morning. Sound of freedom tonight. Come on, you guys are catching on. I told you, some of you aren't going to like me by the end of the day. (laughs) I hope I'm waking somebody up this morning. Come on, let not this Easter season just be another Easter season where we celebrate Easter and the resurrection and we have to come Cadbury Easter and buy eggs. We love Cadbury Easter eggs. Don't get me wrong, I'm not dissing on Cadbury Easter eggs. Don't forget mine. How many people know it's way much more? It's way, there's something bigger happening, more profound 
happening in this moment. So God wants our affection. Second thing God wants is he wants our attention. He wants our mind. The things that we focus on, the things that we think about, the things that we dwell on. Listen, he wants distraction-free attention. Distraction-free attention is a demonstration of love for one other person. How many people know, and I've been on this, I've told this story many times, my wife and I, we go on a date, a lot of times you go in a restaurant, and I have to position myself back towards the TV. Because left to my own devices, I will fixate on that TV. I don't even know what's going on. I can't hear it. But my, my, I'm just, I'm like a dog. I'm like, distraction squirrel. You know, like, I can't help it. So the greatest act of love for me is, to see, is positioning myself where all I see is my wife. Some of us need to put our phones down when our kids are in the room. Have a conversation with your loved one. You have a phone in your hand. You got the TV on. Distraction-free attention. He wants your attention. He wants your focus. Listen, whatever you love most, you think about the most, right? Whatever you love most, you think about the most, and God wants to be on your mind. Listen, God wants to be in your schedule. He's not just an add-on at the end of the day if you have a little bit of time. He wants to be in your schedule. He wants to be on your mind. He wants your attention. Romans 12, 2, a verse we know so well. Don't become so well-adjusted to the culture of the world that you fit in without even thinking about it. Instead, what does it do? We need to fix our attention on God in order to be changed from the inside out. Listen, we've got to fix our attention on God. We've talked about this. Many of you are doing it. I've heard many people talking about doing the first 15. You need a little help. You need a little direction. You need a little, a little encouragement. Download the app called First 15 and just do it. 15 minutes of worship, 15 minutes of prayer, 15 minutes of reading scripture. I mean, five, sorry, five minutes. Five minutes of worship. Even better, five minutes of worship, five minutes of scripture, five minutes of prayer, and you just follow the prompting. And I guarantee what? It may start as a discipline, but I guarantee it'll turn into delight, and then it will take you where desire can't. And you're going to see the goodness of God, the fruit of God, the goodness of God coming in your life. He wants your attention. Worship is our response to what values mess. Last thing, I know going over, going over. You okay with this? Going a little longer? I don't mean to. God wants us to worship with him with our abilities, our strength, the efforts, it's not just a lip service, but the love in action. Love in action. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work with all your heart as working for the Lord. Like, this is worship. Whatever you do, whatever your hands find themselves, just work as unto the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance for the Lord as a reward. It is for the Lord Christ you are serving. Listen, as you serve with your energies and your efforts, your abilities, do it as worship unto the Lord, giving him everything that he has given you. Hebrews 13, 15, it says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually, someone say continually. What does that mean? Always, never stop continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Do you know that your praise for God doesn't stop when you leave this room today? Your praise for the Lord doesn't stop and you're not picking it up next Sunday when you drive onto the property? No, continually, always, never stop without ceasing. Praise the Lord. With the fruit of your lips that openly profess His name and do not forget to do good. Listen, you want to you show your love? You want to demonstrate your love for God? then do good to those he loves. Serve those. 
We say this often, right? How do you love a God you can't touch? Because you love those that he loves, the ones you can touch. And how do we love those we love best? We, we tell them about the transforming love of Jesus. We circle right back to Jesus. So serve, don't forget to do good and serve others for such sacrifice. God is pleased. You want God to be pleased over you? Some of us are worried. I don't know if God's pleased with me. I'll tell you how you know. Just start serving people. You want to know if God smiles over you today? Who are you serving? Who are you showing goodness to? Who are you doing good to? Who are you serving and, and showing God's love to? If it's about yourself, you're missing out. But if it's about others, you're growing in love and you're solidifying your faith. See, acts of service is a demonstration of love. It's, it's obedience and worship unto God. So here's my prayer. I pray you hear me today as I pray that our passion level begins to reflect God's passion towards us. I really pray that our passion for him, for his word, for his truth, for his ways, stirs something in us to reflect the passion that he has to us. That we would, like Jesus, who on Easter gave his life for all, we would then in turn give our life for him, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Is it as big as you think it is? Or is it something you can just step over and say, I'm choosing. I don't care how I feel. My faith isn't going to be directed to my, my, how I feel today. It's not going to be connected to my emotions. It's not going to be connected to whether God answered my prayer the way I wanted him to. No, I'm going to worship him because I'm getting a revelation of who he is. I'm going to worship him anyway. I'm not just going to thank him for what he done. I'm going to thank him in advance for what he's yet to do. I'm going to praise him. My life, my affections, my attitudes, and my abilities.